Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have the one and only Mr. Brad Hart on the show. So stay with us. And we're back. Let me bring Brad on. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. And I appreciate everybody for listening. I hope you get some out of this conversation today. Hey, man. Um, you know, I've been doing this now for a little over three years. I've interviewed over, I don't even know, 370 plus celebrities and entrepreneurs. And um, sounds like you've got one heck of a story. I'm excited to hear it. So, um, why don't we start with you telling everybody where you were born and raised? Sure. So I grew up on Long Island, which is a little community east of New York, about 2 million people. Um, and my father was a lumber truck driver. My mom was a, she worked in delis and eventually became a court officer. Dad got hurt when I was about two years old and had to quit his job. So he was driving his lumber truck and a load shifted while he was driving down a hill and it smashed into his back, went right through the back of the cabin. Yeah, it was a pretty nasty injury. So he wow. was on a, you know, he couldn't walk for about six months. He was getting around on a mechanics roller, which is pretty interesting. He, during that time of his life, he created a lot of art. So we still have some of it. Like he did this one, uh, like felt board with pins in it. And then you'd wrap colored twine or string or whatever, you know, thread around it. And he made a peacock. I was like, this is pretty cool. I don't even know if you can make those anymore. I'm not sure what it's called, but yeah, stuff like that. And he eventually got the surgery so that he could walk again, but he was never not in pain again. So he had sciatica and terrible problems his whole life. So he's never able to go back to work, which left us, you know, on basically subsistence income. So now we're living on social security, disability. He's hurt when he was like 37, 38. So about my age now. And um, he was a young kid, about two years old. My mom, the deli, you know, wasn't cutting it. So she decided to go back and get a better trained job. So she became a court officer, which led her to have to move to the city uh, where she met my stepfather. And you know, eventually their marriage didn't go so well, but um, you know, they stayed together on paper for me so that I would have a home to live in. She, you know, provided for us, but she was never around. So I was very independent, you know, uh, yeah. very, uh, you know, had to take care of myself kind of kid, you know, I had to do all the dishes and take out the trash and mow the lawn, do all the things around the house. And, you know, the kids in my neighborhood, like, I don't know a lot of you, what age you are, but you probably remember a world where there's no internet, you know, if you're at least yeah. my age. and growing up in that and now seeing the world today, it's a very different thing. Like if you grew up in the world that the internet you didn't meet people unless they lived in your neighborhood or kind of the surrounding towns. Yeah. Right? If somebody lived yeah. in Nassau County. I lived in Suffolk County. I would never meet, meet them. Never once. Right. 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 Uh, and you know, places like California or Europe, you know, or, or places that I've, I've been to and traveled since were just insane. So like I'm eight years old. I remember very distinctly being on the swings at school and, you know, I'd been beat up by bullies and had all kinds of, you know, going back and forth between friend groups and all kinds of problems. I just remember thinking I didn't have a friend in the world and dreaming and praying one day that that would become a reality, that anywhere I travel to, I'd know somebody. And it took a while, a couple of decades, but I finally got to a place in my life where I feel like I know people all over the world, I've been able to travel and meet people. And um, all of that for me was a function of 
doing mastermind groups, right? Being a part of these mastermind groups. And I didn't really discover that until my mid twenties, but it changed my entire life. So it's really a huge part of my story. So I'll, I'll kind of jump ahead and then I'll come back if that makes sense. So, you yeah. Yeah. I, it, let, let me ask you though, like, you know, you, you had a, what age was it when you, when you, um, inherited the stepfather situation? Yeah. So I was about five and oh, okay. I remember very distinctly. Yeah. My, my mom and dad, uh, were arguing and my mom was being weird, like surreptitious for some reason. I couldn't figure out why she was being kind of evasive. And she took me to the the deli parking lot where she worked and the deli was closed. And there's this guy sitting there with a mustache. who I'd never met. It was very strange, uh, you know, kind of meeting. And this, yeah. she's like, this is Tom. He's my new friend that I've, we've been hanging out. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you wow. know, five year old kid. You're like, well, you did, yeah, you did at five. You don't, you don't get. And that. God bless Tom, man. I mean, my mom's had so many problems over the years, and I don't want to get into that on uh, in public. It's yeah. not right, but um, she, he's been there every step of the way, helping her with any challenges that she's faced. So I'm so grateful for him. And he's been there for me. You know, he's been my dad longer than my real dad has been my dad at this stage of my life. So yeah. um, I'm just so grateful that he is there. But in the me in the, in the beginning, I didn't give him any credit. I cut him any slack, you know, because I was this, you know very independent, uh, frustrated, yeah. you know, it, just stubborn kid that didn't want any help from anybody, you know, cause I couldn't it, rely on anybody. It felt like, and that's where it was. When, when you were, when you were a kid, did you, um, I, I don't know if you were like me or not. I, I, I was from a very poor family and, and decided at a very young age, I needed to make money. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I well, figured it out. You saw, right. You saw the whole world suffering because yeah. of lack of money. Yeah. Right. So you start to realize like, wait a second, if I could just solve this money piece, cause I knew there were rich people. I understood yeah. that that was a possibility. I didn't know any, or at least I didn't think I knew any, cause none of them, you know, ostensibly were wealthy. You know, right. Nobody lived in massive houses. Nobody drove fancy cars. You know, it's just a very working class neighborhood. You know, a lot of people drove for FedEx or worked at a deli or, you know, or a mechanic or something blue collar. So it wasn't until I was about 16 that I realized that anyone in my family ever had or did have wealth. And the way that came about was pretty interesting. So my grandfather was a World War II veteran. He fought in uh, the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was a supply sergeant. So his job, he was older when he got drafted. So he would type and he would take care of, you know, things that, um, you know, people needed along the lines and whatnot. Um, and basically when he was going into the nursing home in his eighties, he decided to leave his money to my father early so that he could, you know, transition into this home without it cleaning him out. Cause nursing homes, if you don't know, are very, very expensive. They can charge yeah, you right. thousand dollars a day and you I don't care how much money you have. You're going to go broke eventually doing that. Right. Um, so, so we wanted to put him on Medicaid and it was up to me to help my father who didn't have any real financial education. Um, basically didn't even have a bachelor's degree. He went to some college, but you know, he became a lumber truck driver. So, you know, not, not a, not a wall street hedge fund Titan or anything like that. Yeah. Right. He, he inherits uh, what turned out to be about $2 million. And we had no idea that my grandfather had all his money. We're like literally calling up all these brokerages trying to figure it out because grandpa's uncle, my great uncle, uncle Al had invested in like standard oil and bell telephone and never sold. it. gave it to my grandfather that became 25 different oil and gas and telecom companies, all the ones we know today. And he was living off the dividends and we didn't really get it because he would drive new cars, but he wouldn't like be ostentatious about it. Like you get like a yeah. new Buick every five years. Right. And he right. had his house paid off and like he would take us out to lunch every week, but we didn't have any outward signs of wealth, except for he would pay for things in cash. And he didn't like, he didn't, he didn't buy you a new Ferrari. On no, nothing like that. So <laughs> grandpa was like the kind of guy that every two days he would go down to the store, you get a carton of cigarettes. 
yeah. and he would get uh, a bottle of Gentleman Jack and two days later, he'd go back and do it again. You know, he'd smoke wow. five packs of cigarettes a day and drink a half a bottle of whiskey. And that was just his existence for two decades that I, wow. you know, I was alive, uh, that he was alive during my life. So it was really interesting to see, um, you know, how this person so close to us who I knew and respected and looked up to had so much money and we had so little, and it wasn't a big deal to him. Like it was just part of his reality versus our life, which was kind of subsistence, right? It was really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if we did, if if I wanted anything beyond you know food and shelter, I really had to work for it. It's ever since I was age twelve. So like age twelve, I wanted a guitar. Went out and started mowing lawns. You know, that was my first business, and I marketed for leads and I generated sales and I delivered the service and I became an entrepreneur kind of unwittingly, not knowing what that was, just because like I was tired of just there's not enough money for anything uh, that we want. Yeah. So that became kind of the course of my life. And then I just got better and better jobs based on the opportunities I would see. So like we used to hear pop, pop, pop out in the woods. And I always thought it was hunters, but I never put together. There's actually a shooting range on the other side of the woods from where I lived, which in was Long probably Island. a mile away. But I just never knew that there was a freaking shooting range. Yeah, it was like skeet and trap range and a, and a rifle range, literally within earshot. But I didn't know it was there. That's like how, you know. Wow. Insulated you are in this neighborhood. Well, and I, you know, I've, I, I don't. I've never been to Long Island. I, I've flown into LaGuardia and JFK, which is technically um, part of New York City, but it's on the yeah. same mess. But but I, so I, but and I've only been to Manhattan one time, and I drove from Ohio over there to to have for a business meeting. Then I had Very other than Ohio. <laughs> What's that? Very different than Ohio. <laughs> oh, dude, and and, and, and you know, I, so I've never been to Long Island. I hear, but you know, I think probably from television or whatever. When I sure. think of Long Island, I think house, 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 house. Like yeah. they're all stacked on top of each other. That's a more Nassau about a shooting range through the woods, man. Yeah, yeah. I, that's a more, more st Nassau stereotype. It's very, you know, densely populated. A lot of Jewish yeah. and Italian influence. That's where you get that accent. A lot of people say, why don't you have a Long Island accent? I kind of do around certain people in certain situations, but it's not as heavy and thick as, as some of the people from Nassau County. We live way out east, like two hours from the city. Like it's pretty far. So wow. uh, long story short, you know, that that's where I grew up. It was pretty interesting. I and mean, it was it was like a lot of uh, racial and gang warfare, a lot of like white supremacist gangs and skinheads and you know, black and Hispanic gangs and like all this crazy stuff. Cause the the school districts on Long Island, the way they were set up had like tens of thousands of kids. They were enormous school districts. Some of the biggest in the country, like Wine Danch and, uh, you know, uh, Long Longwood and Sachem, they were like massive school districts. So you'd bus in kids from all these different neighborhoods that were all different races and economic, post-economic levels. And it was really interesting. My mom didn't want me to have anything to do with that. She went to Longwood and witnessed like race riots in the hallways and shit like that. She didn't want anything to do with that. So she put me in Catholic school after like elementary school, basically. So from middle school on, I went to Catholic school. I hated it. I didn't want to be a part of it. I barely graduated, but uh, she got me out of that situation, which I think was ultimately for the best because there were some pretty gnarly influences around me. Like one kid murdered three people and he's still in jail and another guy died. And like, there's all kinds of stuff that happened when I was a kid. And I don't like, I still get nervous, like even driving around my old neighborhood because it's just so much nonsense that, uh, wow. you know, I used to get bullied a lot and I used to get beat up and, you know, I'm just thankful I didn't get killed. You know, there's a lot of yeah, weird right. situations we found ourselves in, um, with that. So even then I knew something was up, like not having anything to compare it to, but you kind of just take it as normal because that's where you grew up. Right. Right. Um, you so, don't think so that's you, odd. So you, is that where you like graduated high school and all yeah, that? So I graduated from a little Catholic school. It's not there anymore. It's called mercy high school. I was like, okay. 30, I think there's 35 kids in my graduating class. Really? Uh, football on the football team. We had our best year ever that year, even though I didn't play much. Uh, I think we went five and three, which is like a huge accomplishment to have a winning season <laughs> yeah. for a tiny little school. Uh, yeah. 
but yeah, so I went to, to school. I didn't do great in high school, but I, I got better in college. I got a 4.0 in my community college. But I, like I said, I was always getting these entrepreneurial jobs. So like the reason I found out about the shooting range is one of my friends down the street had got a job there and he was making money and like tips. And I'm like, whoa, tips. This is crazy. Like they give you extra money on top of what you make. So like I remember the first time I got a $20 tip working at the shooting range because uh, they got me a job there. And that was like game changer for me. And I was like obsessed with what did this guy do where you could just hand $20 bills out? This is wild. <laughs> he owned a Meineke dealership. And I'm like, come show me your Meineke dealership. Like I was so excited to just learn about wow. how I get out of this grinding effing poverty. And you know, this, this, is, this is at what age? I was probably 13, 14, 15 in that range, you know? Wow. Yeah. So I'm like in a, like basically learning how to shoot and then becoming a range instructor. That was like how I'd make more tips and I would, yeah. I would pull targets for people and reload the houses and teach people how to shoot and like, you know, make sure they were safe. Uh, I've been hit by buckshot a few times and pellets a few times, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy. That hurts. Uh, I did in the, in the, in the beginning of my life, but I also worked in restaurants. I was a bus boy. I worked on an ambulance, like whatever the best job I could get that paid the most money is what I would go for. And eventually I landed wow. on bartending, which put me through college. That was like my biggest earning job, believe it or not. I started when I was 18, 19. Is that, is that where you learn how to talk so fast? Yeah. Well, Long Island, we talk fast. That's one thing. For sure. It's very quick. I'm and from Ohio, man. It's like, yeah, I got to slow it down. Um, well, you, you, it was funny because Ken and I were kind of BSing before the show and he's like, you know, we only got an hour for this. Is that going to be enough time to tell your story? I'm like, well, I can tell in 15 minutes if you need me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, morning, you know, I like one of the things, you know, look, this show is called breakthrough walls and it's not, it's, it's about, you know, sharing your story, but sharing the pain too, because oh, yeah. the pain is, is everybody goes through the pain. And unfortunately, Brad, some people get stuck in the pain and stay right. there for life. And, you know, I grew up poor also, and I, I mowed lawns. I did all that stuff. Um, but you know, like, when, when you were in college, you ended up bartending. I mean, was there, were, did you have challenges along the way? Like, oh, you know, sure. Oh God, I can't pay the rent or whatever. Like, yeah. You know, so thankfully my dad, um, he had inherited that money. So I, I like, I had a part of my life where we had nothing. And then I had a yeah. part of my life where we had something. It wasn't endless. My dad was like giving out money to me and my cousins and different people. And he like, he rented beach house every summer. So he kind of lived high on the hog. He bought cars. Uh, by the time I was 24, I had been working in real estate for a couple of years and that was where I really took off. So like I got a, I got my bartending job that fell apart with the financial crisis because a lot of our clients were bankers. So like that all dried up. I used to be making four or 500 a night, went away pretty much as soon as Lehman and Bear and all the banks that were within walking distance to my bar went under. So wow. they were, uh, yeah. you know, I went from making hundred K a year almost in cash to almost nothing, not being able to pay my rent, had this nice apartment in Midtown, had to move up to Harlem, downsize eat into my savings, couldn't figure it out, couldn't get another bartending job, which is a blessing. I didn't want to stay bartender, uh, but I pounded pavement for weeks. I ended up from you know Upper West Side, Upper East Side, for people who know Manhattan geography, pounding pavement all the way down for two weeks to literally got to Broad Street. I was almost at Wall Street. I was almost at the end of the island. Wow. And I saw this ad on Craigslist where they were uh, hiring brokers uh, to train, right? Hiring people to, to sell stocks. And I thought to myself, well, I read a quote by Warren Buffett. When, you, when people are running out of the room, you should be running into the room. I'm like, what's the best time to get in on Wall Street is when not when everything's crazy and people are making tons of money. It's when, you know, when it's it's kind of down and there's people, you know, afraid. So get in there and start buying socks and doing the things that we're doing. Um, so I went, I'll never forget this. I went to the office of this uh, asset management firm. I have no idea if it's still there. It was 44 Wall Street, ninth floor, E1 asset management. And I walked in, I talked to the senior broker and they hired me. Right? Okay, great. 
But how, what, my job. What, what qualifications did you have? Zero qualification. I was hungry <laughs> and I talked fast and they liked that. Cause you, you know, you see guys walking around the office in their slick suits and their earpieces, pitching visa stock, whatever they're pitching. At the time, so which actually, this, is like, this is like real life. Wolf yeah, of boiler room. Exactly like boiler room. Uh, but on <laughs> boiler Street, room. Right? Yeah. it wasn't on some, you know, in that movie, it's out on long Island and did he oh, throw his Ferrari key at you? No, nothing like that. They're just like, Hey, you want to make money? This is where we learn to make money. This is where all the money in the world passes through this street. I'm like, Jeez. okay, you told me, right? So, all right, what's my job? You're going to go in this office with brick walls, no windows, and you're going to call 500 people in the morning from 6 a.m. to noon, and then you're going to take a half hour break. Then you're going to call 500 people from oh my God. You know, noon to noon, 12.30 to, to 5 or whatever. And some people would stay and call Asia at night. You know, So oh I would call God. the U.K. in the morning. I would call the U.S. in the afternoon, and then people would stay and call Asia at night. I decided to hedge my bets and get a real estate license. I only lasted on Wall Street for like a month. I couldn't do that job anymore. I didn't want to become a broker. I saw these guys just were devoid of all, you know, there was, they were very one dimensional. Let's put it that way. I remember my favorite quote from that time was, um, somebody asked my senior broker or whoever was in charge, uh, maybe he was a partner. I don't remember. Uh, what, uh, what would you do if you woke up tomorrow and you had $10 million in your bank account? He said, well, first I'd wonder where the rest of my fucking money went. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Holy crap. So there you go. That's, wow. that's kind of how it was. Um, wow. so, so long story short, like I, I got my real estate license at night. I got recruited by this uh, firm called Bond New York, two guys from Philadelphia, Bruno and Noah, uh, that, that really took a liking to me. And I was good on the phones at this point because I had been rejected so many times. I mean, that's just the only reason I'm good at anything is because I'm stubborn. And I keep trying. Um, so I got hired. I got put in office in Midtown, this beautiful office overlooking you know, Columbus Circle and Central Park had views of that. It was really cute, cool. And uh, they they put me in charge of people after a while. I got like five promotions in two years. So I had a team of, after two years, I had a team of like six people working under me. I had five promotions. I learned how to market. I learned how to sell. I learned how to negotiate. I learned how to advertise, like all these different skills that were entrepreneurial that I had never done before in an environment that that supported that, right? So yep. it was really just, you know, can you rent apartments and get broker fees? And at the time it was rough in New York City. So typically in a good license, or I'm sorry, in a good market rather, you have the brokers are being paid by the tenants. That's how New York works, right? They pay yeah. you up to two months, or at least it did at the time um, of rent to, to get this apartment. And you work with the landlords and they only work with brokers. So they have this basically unpaid workforce that goes out and advertises and markets their apartment. It doesn't work anywhere else in the world. I'm not even sure it still works in New York. But at the time, that was kind of the thing because like half the rental real estate was owned by five big families, basically. Yeah, right. Um, wow. So it was, it was wild. So I worked for them for a while. And at the end of two years, I'm on my way to uh, Long Island to visit my mom. I remember it was May 9th or 10th or whatever. Uh, it was Mother's Day. And I got a, a call on my cell phone, like two stops from my station. I was on the train and it was a cop saying, hey, is this Brad Hart? Uh, you know, your, your father's passed away. I said, oh, man, you know, I was really in shock. Uh, so like, okay, I'll get as soon as I can. So here wow. I am I'm going to visit my mom. It's, you know, a normal Sunday. I'm actually making money at this point. I'm, I'm in a pretty good place, you know, starting to pay down debts and figure out my transgressions of the previous years and uh, live my life. But I'm, I'm overweight. I'm burned out. I'm tired. Like I've been working really hard for a long time. Um, and my dad passed away all of a sudden. And I, I realized, you know, at that moment, obviously I was dealing with family and a lot of other things uh, that a few things. Well, thing one was, you know, life's not forever. You know, he was only 61 yeah. when he passed. He wasn't in great health. He was an alcoholic, but um, you know, that's pretty young to die, especially when his parents were in their nineties, you know, when they passed. 
Uh, second thing was he had whittled that two million bucks he had inherited eight years earlier to about half a million. Now, two thousand eight had happened in that in that purview too, so it wasn't all his mm. fault. But, you know, he had been burning a lot of cash and selling socks and things like that. If he had lived another three to five years, I think he would have been pretty much broke. Um, so there was that, and then. Also, he had been kind of rent rolling my cousins and giving away money to people I didn't know and just strangers and helping out, you know, his bum friends that he knew his whole life. And that's wow. all fine. That's if that's what you want to do with your money, it's your money. But it wasn't like, you know, super, it yeah. wasn't super productive, right? It wasn't what I would have been doing with the money, given my background and my giving my respect for money and how I grew grown up, right? He he was doing his best with what he knew at the time. And I felt a responsibility given the, the history that my family had, because my grand, my great grandfather was apparently way more wealthy than my grandfather. That's why he had any money to begin with, um, and, my, and his uncle. Uh, so, like, there was a generational gap between the wealth that they had and the land that they had back, you know, four generations prior to my grandfather, who was well-to-do but not crazy mega wealthy, to my father, who was basically broke his whole life, uh, except for that last few years, and then myself, who grew up with nothing. Right? And yeah. Uh, my thought was, how can I rebuild this? And I thought that would solve all our problems, right? So Wall Street was the way, real estate was the way. And I kind of combined those ideas into this idea of, you know, stocks and, and you know, investing. Uh, my first big stock win, I would say, would be 3D printing stocks. So at the time, and now 3D printing is more of a household thing, but at the time, nobody knew about it. And I had this opportunity to go to a mastermind with, well, all right, let me start with the mastermind journey because I think this will color this whole thing. So I met Tim Ferriss at a gym in 2009 in uh, New York City. I was on my lunch break. Uh, I was working on Mercer Street at the time. I walked over to Cooper Square, went to the New York Health and Racket Club there. And there's two people in the gym that day. It was myself and Tim Ferriss. And I looked at him. I'm like, you're Tim Ferriss. He's like, I am. I'm like, cool, man. I've read your book like seven times. This four-hour workweek book is amazing, right? Yeah. Um, and he wasn't like the 800-pound gorilla of social media and you know, top podcaster he is today, but he was still pretty famous in some circles. So yeah, yeah he's very... Good, nice guy, really cool. Yeah. Um, he just, you know, shot the shit with me for 15 minutes. He even came and found me afterwards. Hey, man, it was great to meet you. I hope we our paths cross again. He's just a really nice guy. And wow. On Long Island. And yeah, he grew up in East Hampton and we talked about that. Um, so yeah, really nice guy. Really excited to meet him. And, you know, didn't have his phone number, nothing. Just, you know, cool experience, right? Cool yeah. story, bro. Two years later, his other book comes out. You know, so my dad died, all this other stuff happened. Two years later, his other book comes out, The Four Hour Body. And he did this giveaway thing where it was like, if you buy this many books, you get this whatever, right? And the yeah. top thing was, if you buy a thousand books, you can go to Africa or um, India, or we'll take you to some country and do like a 10 day thing with Tim. And I was like, this is really cool. And I had met, uh, no, I hadn't met at this point. I, I called up Charlie, who was running his, his director of special projects, Charlie Hone, who is a friend of mine now for a decade. And Charlie's like, Hey, a lot of people want these trips, but they're not people that Tim wants to spend time with for 10 days. He doesn't even know them. Right. Right. You guys met that one time in the gym. He remembers you, you know, you guys seem cool. Do you want to do one of these trips? I'm like, all right. And I just gotten some money from my dad passing away. I'm like, sure. Why not? Let's go to Africa. I don't know when the hell else I'm going to go to Africa <laughs> and see the safari. Like I hadn't traveled really anywhere at this point. I'd been to Italy Dude. with my, my parents and we, we had stayed in the hotel and like done cafe hallway. Cause she kept getting ripped off by all the, like, she, got, she got pickpocketed on the bus and like, we would go to the restaurant and they would, she would want cheese on her clams and they would kick her out and like, you know, oh ATM, it stole 500 euros from us. They're like, we're not going out of the hotel. We're going to buy food at the grocery store. We're going to sit in our hotel. We're going to do cafe hallway. I'm like, 
this is not the way to see Rome. Uh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Out of the country. I got wow. a passport for this, and we barely left the hotel. It was hilarious. That's terrible. And stuff. That was what you wanted to see. So that was funny. Yeah. So anyway, so now I'm in Africa with Tim freaking Ferris and Charlie and uh, Lila Jana, rest in peace, and Sam Source. Um, and they're doing all this incredible charity work over there and helping people get jobs. And her book, Give Work, is really amazing if you want to check it out and, and hear about her mission. She She's one that we lost too soon. She's an incredible soul. Mm. She basically in her lifetime lifted 50,000 people out of poverty. It was incredible. And wow. you know, like a saint, basically. This woman is, is incredible. She never stopped working. She died. She's my age. She died a few years ago. And she wrote this book called Give Work. But at the time, she was doing the Samosource thing, which is her charity. Um, in Nairobi. So we went to visit her. We saw their work that they were doing. We also went on safari and traveled around and saw like some of the, the different things that were going on. on the so in, in, in this whole time, you're just hanging out with Tim Ferriss. Yeah, for 10 days, right? So I'm hanging out with Tim. And, um, Did you get point, his cell you know, phone number? Uh, <laughs> yes and no. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So uh, we did this 10-day trip. Yeah. We're traveling all around Africa. It was really fun. It was like a really cool trip. We uh, me and Charlie almost got, we met some girls locally and wandered off their place and slept under, under, we, we missed the mosquito net memo. So we ended up getting malaria on that trip on the way home. I almost got trampled by donkeys. Cause we're going through these little narrow streets and these donkeys like charged us in the middle of the night. Cause we startled them. We didn't know that we we're doing. We we're just trying to find our way by the light of the moon. There's no lights or like anything in this wow. town. So I almost got trampled by donkeys, got malaria, got to play golf with like the president and general of Kenya. They were like yelling at us in Swahili cause we sucked and they wanted to play through and we're wearing these ridiculous bright pants because <laughs> Uh, you couldn't, you couldn't go in shorts. We didn't bring like jeans or anything right. nice to Africa. So I had to borrow Tim's bonobo pants. So here I am on like this five-star prodigious Nairobi golf course with like all these dignitaries and presidents and generals and stuff. And I'm wearing these ridiculous blue pants and this crazy sun hat, the whitest guy for 800 miles. It was just <laughs> nuts. So, so we did all that. <laughs> and at one point oh, during wow. the trip, Tim sits me down and he says, what do you want to do with your life? And I was geeking out on 3d printing stocks at the time. I tell him about that. And he's like, you know what you should do? you want to go to North Korea? I said, North Korea. <laughs> I said, what the hell would I go to North Korea for? He's like, hey, you're young. You want to go travel? I, my friend's doing a trip there. It's part of this mastermind group. I think you'd be a great addition to it. You can check it out. I'm like, well, who's wow. your friend? He's like, I can't tell you. I'm like, all right, well, are you going to North Korea? He says, nope. So why do I want to go to North Korea? Like, I don't want to be at the whim of a third world dictator. So I, I punked out. I said, no. Um, and I get home. I'm back in New York. And maybe this is a couple months later. I dealt with all the malaria stuff. I went to the hospital. By the way, they couldn't treat me. I waited to get treated after being sick for like days, traveling back, get to the hospital in America. They sit me in a, in a you know ER room for six hours. They put some fluids in me and they say, yeah, nobody in this hospital has ever treated malaria before. I'm like, wait, I should have just oh. went to the hospital in, in Nairobi. They yeah. treated all the time, right? Oh my or in England, God. Where I had to do a layover, but like it was they, they didn't, So they didn't treat you? Yeah, they didn't treat me. They gave me fluids and sent me home. They said, just keep taking your pills, your malarone pills. I'm like, yeah, they did a whole lot of good in the first place. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but they sent me a bill, five thousand dollars. I'll never forget that. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, I, I had to fight with them. I'm like, guys, come on now. This is crazy. Your doctors told me they couldn't help me. Like, you don't get a bill for five grand after you time started. <laughs> yeah, to help when me. you didn't even do it. Pay for the fluid bags, but that's it, you know? Yeah, right. We worked it out. Um, so yeah, so that that was crazy. But it turned out that the guy who ran this mastermind in North Korea was Neil Strauss, who's another famous author who I had met because I'd gone to an, a conference years ago. But I didn't put two and two together that it was Neil and Tim were friends and all that. So um, I get back and I hear about this crazy trip they went to North Korea. And like the president can't go to North Korea. It's like a really crazy place that nobody can travel to. And they have all these stories and, and nuts, nutty things. And there's only like 50 members in this mastermind. So I decided to join. I think I was like the 55th member. And I meet all these amazing people from all of the world, all men. 
And eventually that mastermind grew to like a hundred people and then like the different tiers and local chapters and a membership. And I think he had like 1700 people uh, yeah. doing four and a half million in revenue after a while. I, I, I think he's still doing it for all I know. Uh, we haven't talked in a bit. He's pretty busy. But yeah, so so I joined this mastermind. It was the first time I ever been around people who were like seven, eight, even nine figure earners. You know, one yeah. guy owned like the third largest rolling paper company in the world. We're still friends to this day. You know, it's just it was insane. Like I partners at massive accounting firms like Deloitte and and yeah. people who were 10, 20, 30 years my senior, but they're all men and they're all successful. Right. So here I am. I'm surrounded by people that like make you level up, right? Yeah. But they all have their own demons and obviously they're working through their stuff, you know. So it was just this really interesting time in my life where I'm growing so fast and I've got some money, right? I've, I've been saving and then I inherited a bit from my dad and I want to like put this money to work. So this now, hold on. One, 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 one quick question. Sure. I'll, I'll, uh, throughout this story, I'm not hearing mention of, of siblings. Oh yeah. I'm an only child. Wow. Okay. Yeah, only child. So, so you, you said your dad had about half a million left. And that's what you inherited. Yeah, that in a house that I should have sold immediately. It was pretty beat up. And uh, putting more money into the house, I ended up selling it for. Seven Dude, years that later. house right now would probably sell for three times what it's what it was. For. Yeah, yeah. If you could have held it. Well, the problem with Long Island houses, especially, uh, and why there's so many on the market, especially now, and like in foreclosure and things, is the taxes are nuts. Like twenty thousand, uh, thirty thousand, forty thousand a year. Some cases. Jeez. Yeah. So here I am. I got this two bedroom ranch that maybe is twelve hundred square feet, and I'm paying. $10,000 a year in tax, which was insane at the time. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was one thing. And then renting it, we barely make any money because of the tax. And then, you know, all the bills yeah. that went into like my grandparents and my, my uncle and my dad, they all smoked. So like, yeah, we had uh, layers of nicotine and just crap on the walls. It was pretty brutal. So, you know, fixing yeah. all that up and keeping ahead of it was tough. You know, they built the house for $10,000 in the fifties. Um, the land was wow. probably more valuable. Yeah. And I got screwed on that. I won't tell that story right now, but, uh, the land was like parceled out in a weird way. And, it was wow. supposed to be subdividable. And then they, they, the two lawyers I talked to said I couldn't subdivide it, that it was, it was mishandled earlier on. And then they ended up building two houses on it anyway. So I never got the whole story, but I got screwed on that. Wow. Too. Um, so, so anyway, sorry. So yeah. I didn't mean to throw you off track. You all so good back, back to the mastermind. And what was the investment? I, I you know, I, I love yeah, like people. 10 grand a year. Yeah. yeah. I, Cause I, I get, I get these people that want to pick my brain and, and yet they don't want to pay for brain picking. I'm like, there's, 53 years of experience in this brain. You got to pay yeah, for that. I have a no brain picking policy. I know, right? I put a button also don't on my coffee dates. You can't buy me lunch. I'm sorry. I've got my own food. <laughs> um, but hey, you know. Right, right. So, so okay, you're, you know, you're in the mastermind. Hey, read my book. Uh, hey, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, long story short, I got into 3D printing stocks. It was the first thing I really want at. And I got this opportunity through this mastermind that my friend in the mastermind, he had a uh, column in Forbes and he said, 3D printing is really interesting. And I had also attended a mastermind with Sir Richard Branson where I talked to him about it and he was like, this is really interesting. So like, I was really excited about the idea. Um, by the way, Virgin Galactic just got uh, FAA approval to bring or whatever the, the wow. administration yeah. is to bring people to space. So that's a big deal. The stock just went crazy. Yeah. So congrats, Sir Richard. I doubt you're listening, but <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so yeah, I meet him. I talked to him about the story, the whole deal. Didn't get his emails. Long story. I eventually got in touch with him again. The, the, um, so I'm getting all over the place. The point of the story was 3d printing stocks were big at the time. And I got this article in Forbes and I wrote about the 3d printing stocks that I was tracking without any expectation of anything happening. I'm like, this is just cool. Right. I want to talk about what I'm geeking out on. 
And the article, I, you know, I never, I never thought I'd be in Forbes and I never thought I'd be in Forbes again. So I, I made a list of like 200 people that I met over the years that had any kind of audience. And Tim was one of them. I sent it to Tim like, Hey man, I would love it for you to share this. I don't know if I'll ever be in Forbes again. This would be really cool. And he tweeted about it. And I'm like, awesome. It's like 3 a.m. I'm like, dude, that's amazing. Thank you so much for tweeting it. It went crazy. It got read like 300,000 times because everybody wow. in Silicon Valley was following Tim Ferriss and they're all investors. They all have money, right? So inadvertently, I had created a run in these stocks that just went bonkers. So these stocks went up 10x in the next 18 months. Yeah. You know, not planned out whatsoever. And the uh, some of the people that read the article that were in this mastermind reached out to me. They're like, hey, man, I just paid for my wedding with that stock tip. I'm like, I didn't give you a stock tip. Yeah, you just <laughs> have an article. I'm like, whatever. Anyway. So they're like, hey, how do I give you money to manage? You obviously are pretty good at this. What's next? Let's let's get some money working with you. I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with that. Uh, so I go talk to my friend who was a floor trader at the uh, at Susquehanna Investment Group. He, he traded options in Philadelphia. And uh, he was like, you know what you should do? Start a hedge fund. I said, mm. hedge fund? Can I even do that? Like, don't I need a license? He's like, not really. I mean, as long as people are willing to give you money, here's the SEC laws, blue sky laws, talk to this person, that person. You know, I had a lawyer. I, I I talked to a few different people, so I don't want to put it all on him. But um, you know, I, I got a lawyer. I got a third-party administrator. I got an accountant. I figured out all the different ins and outs. And basically, the big key factor was, will people give you enough money to make this worthwhile? Because right? it's not a, a cheap endeavor to get off the ground. You're talking 50 grand plus to get a hedge fund you know, formed and figured out and all that stuff. And there's a lot of pieces that go into it. So if you're not going to raise a good amount of money, let's say like a half million dollars plus, it's not going right. to make sense. So I made a list again of 200 people that I thought maybe would give me some money. And a lot of them in this mastermind. And I went to them and 17 of them said, yes, I got better at pitching. I refined my pitch. I made the deal sweeter and sweeter. And uh, we got 17 people in and we traded options and equities. Uh, I was also partnered with another fund who had trained me on how to do this and they were having a really good year. So we ended up with over 106% returns that year, which is pretty nuts. You know, if you think about the S&P that year in 2013, I think was a 24% year. So we quadrupled the S&P. Um, we had one month there where the two funds combined made like a million and $40,000 in profit. It was just like a disgusting amount of money that I never thought I would make in my life wow. uh, growing up where I grew up. And it was that moment where we're here celebrating in New York City, living the life, right? Uh, I'm living in New York. I'm working in New York. I'm running a hedge fund. I'm like doing the most New York shit you can think of on the Park Gansevoort Hotel rooftop bar by the pool toasting. I think I quit drinking at the time. So uh, they're toasting champagne. I'm toasting club soda. And I felt more empty, burned out and disconnected. Than I never felt in my life. Mm. And I just thought to myself out loud. I'm like, is this it? Like we just made a million fucking dollars. Why don't I even feel like anything's different? Why do I feel more disgusted with myself, more burned out, more, you know, whatever. Right. And I had worked on some other aspects of my life. Like I'd worked on my health and I worked on my finances and I worked on other things, but spiritually and fulfillment wise, I was way off. So that was the turnaround point for me. I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. It wasn't like, you know, you don't turn a ship in one go. It takes a while to turn, but I realized like, this is not the end goal for me. I can make a hundred million dollars and i probably wouldn't feel any different. Right. So that circuit breaker in my brain, that was like money will solve all your problems. Kind of, you know, you have like Tony talks about Tony Robbins talks about you have a table. It's like a belief structure, right? And yeah. the more legs the table has, the more sturdy it is. If you only have two yeah. legs, it falls over. Three legs is kind of the minimum. If you have multiple references for a belief or an idea, it'll yeah. um, it'll it'll stand up. It'll it'll hold water. And one of my legs had just been kicked out. Like money was going to solve all my problems. So that belief was starting to erode. And over the next, let's say, year or so, I decided that hedge funds weren't for me. I didn't want to trade anymore. I was burned out doing that. It wasn't my best. You know, I love talking to people. I love. Telling stories. I love meeting people. I love connecting with people. I love masterminds, but it wasn't for me. 
So I, I decided I was going to switch gears and I ended up writing a big check to everybody. And by the way, when you're doing well and you're on a roll, a roll in hedge funds, like I'd wake up with wire transfers from Switzerland in the middle of the night, not knowing where the hell they came from and having to call all my investors and be like, whose money is this? And they're like trying right. to hide it from the wife. And it's like, you know, not ideal for, for me. Right. Um, right. With the KYC laws, if you don't know what that is, it's like basically know your customer and, and all that stuff. So yeah. I was getting to a point where the hedge fund life was not all as cracked up to be for me. So I wrote everybody a big check. I said, hey, we're done. Thank you for playing. Here's your money. And they were thrilled, obviously, with the returns. They're like, why don't you keep going? I was just like, this, this is not it for me, for whatever reason, right? The spell had been broken. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I decided to start a blog because up until that point in my life, I had done real estate. I had done uh, hedge funds. I had done trading. Everything I had done was like hungry, hungry hippos. Grab them for all the marbles. Anybody play that game with the marbles and there's only so many marbles and four hippos, you got to grab for all yeah, the marbles. Yeah. Why don't I just make more marbles? There's gotta be a world like that, right? Let's talk about abundance and like make more marbles. That's a pretty fun name, right? It's an alliteration and the URL was available. So I started a blog called make more marbles. This is seven, eight years ago now. And I decided that, uh, you know, I was going to write about my journeys and write about what I learned and write about all this stuff. And I wrote a bunch of articles, but I didn't really have a theme. I didn't really know what it was going to be about. I didn't know how to help people. And I knew some things about marketing and sales, but I didn't know all the things I had lost $45,000 on my first venture in internet marketing, trying to sell a course that I hadn't validated. And, you know, doing all that. And I'll, that's another story for another time. But um, I didn't really understand how to bring products to market. And I didn't really understand what my products should be. Um, and I had a lot of internal stuff that hadn't worked out yet. So uh, long story short, I landed in a Tony Robbins event. Mm. I had his book on my shelf for probably seven or eight years. And, you know, funny enough, all, in all that time, the, the words didn't just magically osmosize themselves into my head, right? Isn't that weird? Message, right? It's <laughs> even though I knew that Tony was awesome and I knew that all my successful friends had read him and I knew that, you know, there was something missing in my life and I didn't have, I had success but not fulfillment. I was pushing off on the Tony journey. Yeah. Uh, but when I finally went all in, it was because he wrote a book on money and that was my gateway drug because I was obsessed with finance. So I read Money Master the Game and then I realized it's a 700 page book and nobody's insane like me and they're going to read it in two days. And then I decided to make a, an hour long presentation for my audience at the time, which is very small, uh, and send it out to them just free of charge. Like, hey, if you don't read this book, at least watch this presentation because it's epic. Because um, he had talked to people like Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett, yeah. all these people that had never given interviews before, Carl Icahn and yeah. uh, you know, Mr. Templeton and all this great stuff. So I read this book, I make the presentation. And then I decided I'm going to make a course about that. That bombed, but I got business coaching and health. <laughs> and I sold five and three refunded. Um, so that was like my second big failure in this market. I still didn't know what the hell I was going to sell, but I went to the Tony thing and I had an experience that changed my life. So I'm here at UPW, which is at that time, I think three or 4,000 people. Now they're like 30,000 people. It's gone nuts yeah. in the last few years. But, uh, you know, people are jumping up and down. It's super high energy and the music loud. And it's like, what did, what did I get myself into? I don't understand this. I thought it was going to be like Landmark, which I'd done before where you sit in a chair and they basically... Yeah berate you in front of <laughs> right <laughs> tell you how you're thinking is screwed right up and make up right. language uh nothing against land martians i love them dearly and i've done both uh the you know the, the forum and the advanced but yeah. the uh the tony robbins world was totally different than any personal development type stuff i'd ever experienced and i think it's designed that way right it's kind of designed to be a shock to the system and and help you understand how your emotional state plays into hi sandy uh plays into what you're doing and how important that is and up until my life that time of my life, I had been all logical, all up here, all above the shoulders, all like masculine and surrounded by that. And I thought that was the only way to be successful. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, just little bit by little bit, I started to understand how powerful my emotions were. And the big turning point for me was 
I met a woman there. So we're all jumping up and down. There's all this craziness. This woman just sitting there dejected looking at the floor. So naturally, I'm going to be like, what's going on? Are you okay? And she's like, no, I'm not okay. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, somebody bought me a ticket. I can't feed my kids this month. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, Whoa. All right. Uh, well, I don't know if I can solve all your problems. It seems like you're in the right place, but you mentioned your kids don't have food. That's not acceptable. So let me, let me just fix that problem. If I can do anything for you, what's your address? I sent her one of those prime pantry boxes full of food, you know, healthy, non-perishable stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, if you run out, just send me a note on Facebook and I'll send you more. So we became friends on Facebook, but I never talked to her after that. I honestly forgot all about her. Right. So I gave her the, the food and then sent her on her way. Um, and the event went by and we walked on fire and it was, it was a really cool experience. About a year later, you know, I'd been doing some more Tony stuff. I'd been doing more personal development work and keep working on that plan. About a year later, I get a notification on Facebook and she's live on Facebook and I was tagged in it. And I'm like, okay, interesting. So she's in her car and she's, you know, just face to camera and she's bawling her eyes out. I'm like, oh man, here we go. And, uh, she wow. says to me, she, she says this guy, Brad Hart, who I didn't know fed me and my family at a time when I was ready to give up. Like I, I thought I was, that was the end of my life. I thought I was going to end my life. I'm like, whoa, holy shit. Like, wow. so I had this moment of like, wow, something that was completely like anybody would do no big deal. Totally forgot about it. Changed her life. And now she's on the upswing. Wow. That's amazing. And that's the yeah. kind of impact you can have for people at that time in their life. I was blown away. So I realized like, wow, Tony's really got something on the ball here. The secret to living is giving and you and success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And those are the two things that just keep, you know, banging around in my head. So I was like, okay, well, what else can I do? So I got involved in charities, right? Like the Greatness Foundation. You can see the hat over there. It says do great things. Yeah. Um, so this is my friend, Mike Sherbakov. When I moved to San Diego, we got to be close. And what Mike uh, and we do now, I'm on the board, is we build houses and schools and work in refugee camps and provide clean water and whatever we can do to help out around the world. And obviously COVID kind of threw a wrench in that, but I think we've done about 200 housing projects now. Wow. Uh, in different countries and worked in, you know, the Syrian refugee, uh, the Syrian refugee crisis out in Greece and help those people and uh, wow. schools in Central America. Yeah. Just so like you can't do it in the United States because it's ridiculously expensive and litigious and, and the permits and, you know, all that stuff is just makes it impossible for any reasonable amount of money to do real charity here. But you can build a house in Mexico for a family that's living in tarps and sticks in like a day and a half or two days. And now they have a house. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. So we do that a lot. Um, specifically wow. in one community down there called Manny Dara on the Baja Peninsula, kind of near Ensenada. So, you know, that's that's was a huge amount of fulfillment for me. So so you you um this might be I, I, I don't think I've I've been so quiet ever <laughs> in an interview, man. I normally am like asking all kinds of questions. But so you you said when I moved to San Diego, you ended up like all of this was taking place and you were still in New York. Yes, yeah, so I did uh, about seven years in New York. OK, I was in New York State my whole life, but seven years in New York City. Uh, okay. Kind of bounced around. I went to San Francisco for a while. Tried to chase Tim Ferriss, be like a Silicon Valley investor. Failed. Yeah. I failed a lot. I'm leaving a lot out. But yeah, you know, I yeah. went to San Francisco for a while. I went to Boston for a while. I went to L.A. for a while. I came back. I went to you know New York was kind of yeah. my home base, but I was trying all these different places out. Yeah. And I, I ended up living in San Diego for like four years. Uh, we only moved recently, actually. Uh, we bought a house here in Phoenix, so that, that was our uh, our little our little sojourn out of out of the main areas that most people live. 
Yeah, uh, getting away from that okay. ugly ocean and and yeah, well, those... you know, everything rots, everything rusts. It's yeah. very expensive. You know, yeah, right. Our block is a three million dollar plus house. You know, yeah, yeah. fighting against the elements. Where here we can get a brand new house for half a million bucks. So yeah, right. A little bit yeah. different. Right. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So so um, so uh, you moved to Phoenix, and that yeah. was recently. You said yeah, just in the last three months. So we moved here in April. We closed in May. I'm um, sorry, March rather. Uh, moved in in April, and it's been great. Honestly, it's been 100 plus, you know, 110 plus degrees almost every day the last few weeks. That's a little rough, but we're going to travel more in the summer. It's kind of like the opposite of every other place I've lived and that that the summer is too hot and you go elsewhere where it's nice yeah. in those places. Yeah. And the rest of the, the year is very nice. So yeah. I'm kind of liking that. So, so um, yeah, I lived in Vegas. I, I know all about desert dwelling. Um, yeah. So so you have, and I'm just going to kind of segue into this because we're running out of time and I want to I want to cover this. I have your website, one of your websites up, the eight minute mastermind. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a mastermind that I do, um, every week and, 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 a and a training platform and all of that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious what in the world eight minute mastermind means number one sure. and number two, like, cause I love masterminds. I'm in Jeffrey Gittimer's mastermind, the, you know, the little red book of selling guy. And he's one of my best friends and, you know, masterminds work like they work and people don't yeah. get it. They do not understand the power of it. They've so probably talk never about, been a part of a good one. Yeah. Talk, what's that? They've probably never been a part of a good one. There's so many crappy ones out there. There are, there are. So, so talk about the, um, the mastermind thing. Yeah. So that first mastermind I talked about was called the society. I was in that one for three years. That changed my life. So I started joining masterminds, just kind of anybody who pitched me on the mastermind. I was like, yeah, I'll try it out. Right. Yeah. Um, and I ended up joining over 30 of them and I started yeah. about a dozen. I started my first one with a coach who was dating through the Tony Robbins world. We ran that for a couple of years. I've run about a dozen all from like eight, 10, 15 people all the way up to like 500 locally yeah. that we meet every week kind of thing. It's just wild. Right. So yeah. I kind of became known as the mastermind guy and I did other things like, you know, hedge funds and marketing and uh, an agency at one point, but I kept coming back to masterminds, kind of like my first love. And then I realized one day I'm like, wow, I know a lot about masterminds. And I started looking for like books and resources and topics and training on like, you know, what makes a good mastermind versus a crappy one. And I realized like all the books were okay. There was none that just stood out. So I'm like, I'm going to write the best book that's ever been on masterminds. I'm going to you know, take it all the way back to like the origins, Napoleon Hill, et cetera, Henry Ford, and to today and give people examples and case studies and pieces that they can use and, and tools that they can use to run a really great mastermind. And I think um, a great mastermind, you can add a lot of stuff to it, but the main core things are the content, the hot seats, and the networking. If those three yeah. things are really well done and curated, the mastermind is going to be great. Everything else you add to it is, is fluff on top of that. Um, so I wrote this book called the eight minute mastermind based on the idea that I've done 10,000 hours of hot seats at this point as a facilitator, I can get yeah. people to where they need to be in eight or 10 minutes. But I just call it the eight minute mastermind also, because it's kind of funny to me that, you know, seven minute abs, eight minute abs, everybody makes that joke. <laughs> yeah. And Paris is one of my huge influences for our work week. So I was like, eight minutes is kind of cool. And then I just started writing a series because this became a, an international bestseller. We sold a lot of copies of this book. Uh, so I did the eight minute money manager as a follow-up. You can check that out at eight minute money That talks about here, my let me give you full, there. Hold that yeah, up so, again. So this is, I'll show you the two books here. So we got the eight minute mastermind. That's this guy here back a little bit. Yeah. Behind the 
that's that. Yeah, and then yeah, you got yeah. the eight minute money manager. It's, it's interesting. Cause it's like backwards. I'm looking at yeah. a mirror. Um, but yeah, so that, and now we're working on the eight minute marketer. So that'll be the third book to finish the series. We'll talk about marketing and sales and everything I learned about becoming a top Tony Robbins affiliate and uh, building book funnels and you know, all that great stuff. So if you want to check out either of those books, you can go to eight minute mastermind.com. And then you can go to eight minute money manager.com. If you want to learn about money management, um, that's was my career for a long time. And I, I feel like I have some interesting things to say about that. Uh, yeah. Victoria asked your artwork is pretty interesting. Can you share about that a bit? So I, I, I presume you're talking about the artwork behind me. Yeah. Um, so thing one is the lion. So hopefully that doesn't cut the video feed, but the lion is, um, you still there? Yep. I'm here. Uh, the lion was my girlfriend's response to a girl I used to date who was an artist drew me this picture of a lion. Cause I'm a Leo. It was really beautiful. It was crayon and just, she threw it together and she meant it. She's like, I'll do you a better lion. <laughs> she went and she found a paint by numbers lion and, and filled it out. And made it really nice. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, the Buddha <laughs> is just, I thought it was cool. It was at Ikea. There it is. Right. Yeah. And then these three samurais I found at a yard sale. So they kind of encircled the Buddha. Um, they were like these beautiful ceramic figurines. And my friend sold them to me for like 15 bucks a piece. I'm like 45 bucks. It's beautiful art. It's all ceramic. Like, that's wow. pretty cool. So there you go. I wanted something nice behind me and there it is. So, so talk about what you're, what, what's, uh, so, and I love, I love Tony Robbins changed my life 30 years ago when I, when I read awaken the giant within. Um, and I remember him talking about, I don't know if you've read that book or not, but you know, he, he talked about his flying his jet helicopter over San Diego mm -hmm. and hovering over the building that he, and he's, he had this, you know, memory that he was a janitor in that building just 10 years earlier. And he says a lot can change in a decade. Right. And, and, you know, talk about, because it can, I mean, it's, it's just that simple. It, it life can change and it can change quickly for the better. Um, but, you know, one of the things I like to ask everybody on the show is, um, and, and I, I'm trying to be aware of the time. If as we well. run a couple minutes over. It's not going to kill. Okay. I'm trying um, to get my appointments. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people get stuck, mm -hmm. right? And stay stuck for life. They yeah. go to their grave stuck. And, and, you know, I, I my, uh, my question is this. What, in your opinion, is the number one thing that holds people back from two different things, financial success and real happiness. And I do believe they're related. I do believe they're they're Cause I've Certainly. been, I've yeah. been poor as hell and I've been very wealthy and wealthy is way better, way better, but it doesn't solve all your problems. Cause there's only does certain not problems solve all your problems. No. Yeah. Right. No. And, and really it just comes down to what's going on between your ears. That's one thing. But I think the bigger thing, if I had to pick one thing is momentum. So we all are victims of momentum, inertia, gravity. There's all these forces that impact upon us. And momentum is, I think, the biggest force that determines uh, where you end up. Because people have momentum with their habits, with their beliefs, with the structures in which they think, yeah. their, uh, you know, their, their jobs, their families, all the things that just keep them moving in a direction. Yeah. And you have to be a little more creative than that. You have to think to yourself, all right, where do I want to end up? And okay, based on that, no judgments, just where do I want to end up? Is this current path I'm on? Are these habits? Are this you know? Is this rut that routine routine that I'm in, you know, pointing me in the direction 
you know, are these decisions leading to my destiny, as Tony would say? And mm -hmm. if the answer is no, well, then you have two options. You can either succumb to that and just decide, well, it wasn't that important to me anyway. Or you could say, no, this is a priority. I'm going to change things now so that I get momentum in a different direction, which will lead me towards it. Right. And it's not about 100% gains every day. It's like if you could just get 1% better and closer to your goal every day, just 1%. You don't think that's a lot. And on a, on a, if you plot it out like a chart, if you said, okay, show me the exponential graph of 1%. Well, for a long time, it looked like a whole lot of nothing's happening. But guess what? If you get 1% better per day for 365 days, that's not 365% better because it's compounding. It's 3,778 better. You could be 38 times better than where you started in a year. In a decade, as Tony says, it could be a whole new world. You could be flying jet helicopters over the place you used to be a janitor. Yep. It, it's it, so if so you you're saying it's momentum so how how does somebody who you know there was this time my wife and I had just we'd met been together for maybe a year we decided to open an office and and you know had a handful of employees I, this one guy walks in my office Brad and he says hey uh, boss there's a and this dude's huge right way bigger than me there's some dude out in the parking lot looking in the windows of your SUV. And I'm like, so tell him to get the hell out of here. You're bigger than I am, dude. <laughs> he goes, oh, I would, but he's got it blocked with his tow truck. And I was like, oh, oh. you're getting towed. I'm like, ah, you know, and, and dude, I remember in that moment feeling like this is the end of my life. It was the most humiliating moment of my life. I'm being repoed in front of all my employees. Mm. And, and, you know, in 2020, suicide rates went skyrocketed higher than ever. And, and, you know, what about those people? Like the woman that you met at the Tony Robbins event, what about those people who are barely hanging on to life, man? Life has punched them so hard. So many times they don't know which way is up. What do you say if somebody is in that position right now, they're listening to this, watching sure. you, what do you say to help them? Get perspective on your life because no matter how bad your life is, I guarantee you there's thousands of people living below the poverty line. There's thousands of people that don't have clean water. They got to walk 10 miles to get it. There's thousands of people that were born without limbs. You know, I have a client who has no arms and no legs and she fucking runs mastermind. So I don't know what your excuse is, but it's not good enough. Right. So you got to, you got to decide that it's not going to, you're not going to allow the circumstances of your life to dictate how it ends up. Right. Where you start up is not where you're going to end up. That's one thing. Mm. Um, and guess what? Life isn't meant to be easy. There's no fairness inherent in life. It's not meant to be easy, but you can get better in relation to life. Life is just, it's steady state, right? Sometimes it gets a little harder. Sometimes it gets a little easier, but it's relatively steady state. Yeah. It's not changing drastically from day to day. So in relation to life, you can get better and your best can be better than most of what life can dish out in a couple of years. If you really work at it. You can learn how to navigate Maybe. this crazy world that we live in pretty quickly by learning yep. certain skills and eventually, you know, forming those into a network of, you know, Hey, we have skills, we have processes, we have ways we add value to the world in exchange for money, which we can use to solve a lot of the other problems in our life. Like if you used to be really good at making money and helping people, which all wealth comes from benefiting others, right. Is, is giving value. Yep. That's really it. Like if you can just do that, the rest of your shit can be figured out and you'll have the time, energy, money, uh, and, and other resources that are needed in order to fix the other problems in your life. So if you could just focus on that, like anybody with the internet today in a first world country has an insane advantage over 
even the wealthiest people that existed a thousand years ago. You couldn't buy with all the money in the world and all the gold in Montezuma's chest, anything like we had what we have for the average person today, air conditioning, the fact that we have access to medicine, painkillers, um, you know, transportation, uh, food, you know, that's per- non-perishable food that you didn't have to hunt for. Like, come on now. It's wild. Like you have so many advantages. You can go to the free public library. Thank you, Andrew Carnegie, and get on the internet and find resources for people in your situation. So the only reason that anybody's suffering, in my opinion, is, is really a couple of things. They either have some mental illness where they're unable to take care of themselves, which I really feel for those people. I hope they can get the help they need, but the help is available. And yeah. if people who just haven't decided to really just say, you know what? Not another minute, not another second, not another hour of this. I'm going to go out and make a change. I'm going to make a change and it's going to, it's not going to be hundred percent better, but it's going to be 1% better every day. I'm going to commit to that. And over time, I'm going to get the result because I didn't get there day one. I promise you, I'm still not where I want to be, but I'm in much better place than I was 10 years ago. And a much better place than I was 10 years before that. And 10 years before that, because every decade I keep learning, I keep building skills, I keep growing, I keep meeting people, I keep taking chances. That's a huge piece. Like the only yeah. risk in life, there's really no risk, right? It's a zero sum game in the sense that we're all going to die. Right. So what's the point of not trying shit? Yep. So it didn't work out. Great. You found another way not to make a light bulb. Took Edison Edison a thousand tries and he was pretty damn smart. So maybe you could try more than once or twice. You know what the average number of times that people try things before they give up is? 0.7 times. It's less than <laughs> once. <laughs> that, you know what though? That 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 makes it a lot easier for those of us that are uh not afraid of risk to 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 win and that's yeah, you you that, you win you lose you die it doesn't like what does it matter we're all gonna die i agree try what happened like did i know i was gonna be a hedge fund manager no did i know i was gonna be a real estate no did i know i was gonna be a head an author investment no i just took the next best opportunity i just asked myself what are all my options what's the the best option i can go after right now what am i afraid of work through that or get you know leverage on yourself to just do it and yeah. then realize like nothing's really that scary when you just try your best. And the, the the crazy thing, the paradoxical thing is like, I'm not the biggest athlete. I'm not like the best marketer. I'm not the best salesperson, but I try. I really give it my all and I leave it all in the field. I don't want to live with any regrets. So I really give it my all. And I'm always shocked by how great I can do, how I can surpass even my own wildest dreams and expectations just because I gave it my all. Like, yeah. I'll just give a quick example because I think a lot of people can relate to this. When I go to the gym, like Will Smith has a great saying, if we both get on a treadmill together next to each other, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to get off that treadmill before me or I'm going to die. That's that's his approach to working out. Nobody's ever going to outwork me in the gym. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. So I took that same mentality, all right? I learned it from Will and yeah. I went to my to my gym and it was this big CrossFit type gym uh, called something, fit, Burn Fitness or something. And we did this every once in a while. They would just randomly on a Tuesday be you know, <laughs> like, Hey, we're going to do a physical fitness trial today and we're going to compete against each other. And I decided that I was, I didn't care if I was the most in shape. I didn't care if I slept four hours the night before I didn't care what happened. You know, I kind of had to poop a little bit, whatever it was, right. I'm going to go and I'm going to give my very damn best today. And yeah. nobody else is beating me except through the, their sheer force of will, because physically I'm willing to go as far as I need to. Yeah. And every time we did one of those challenges, I want it not because I'm the most athletic specimen in that group. I promise you because I'm so damn stubborn and I'm not willing to yep. give up that I win. 
And it just happened to be like some of the most impressive people weren't there that day. So that's helpful. But <laughs> you can you can do more than you think you can. You have more potential than you believe you can. Yeah. Just think about how many human beings have lived through insane circumstances and come out the other side successful. You have it in your DNA. Just go do it. I love that. Have you have you heard um, David Goggins' book? Can't oh hurt my god, me? David Goggins is a maniac. I He's unbelievable. It. I love surrounding myself with people like that. I know real life people like that. Like my friends, yeah. um, Kyle Duran was a Navy SEAL also for twenty years. Yeah. But not yeah. just that. He decided I don't want to just be a Navy SEAL. I want to be a JAG. So he became a lawyer. Right. So yeah. he becomes a lawyer yeah. and a Navy SEAL. And this is you know what? I'm going to get a, a doctorate in tax law because I'm interested in tax law. So he became a doctor, a lawyer, and a Navy SEAL. He's like, you know what? I'm going to run the Iditarod race. A lot of people run the Iditarod race. It's 350 miles in Alaska through the snow with dog sleds, right? They have a, a team of dog sleds. Wow. This idiot does it on foot three times. Wow. It's One crazy. time he saved a guy's life who was stuck in a snow drift and almost died. So like crazy. he's a real life hero. Now he's the chair of the Iditarod Foundation and he's up there like, you know, bought 40 acres of land that you can only get to by plane and he's got to like chase moose off his property sometimes with rifles. It's a wild experience this guy has, yeah. but he's just a normal guy who decided I'm going to be the best I can be at whatever I put my mind to. And that's it. It's awesome, dude. That's awesome. Brad Hart. Hey, where can everybody follow you? What's the best place? Yeah. So check out my books. If you guys have resonated with yep. masterminds or money or marketing or any of that stuff, check it out. Um, we have eight minute mastermind.com, eight minute money manager.com, uh, make more marbles.com is our main brand. You can check us out there too. I'm on social at facebook.com slash Brad Hart. It's probably where I'm the most active. I was on clubhouse for a while. We built it up and I, I'm just not as excited about clubhouse anymore. We can check me out I'm there. With you. I'm with, I'm with <laughs> Again, you. Kinda, it was cool for a minute and I'm just burned out on it. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I'm around. Feel free to shoot me a note and happy to help. And I hope you like what, what I had to say and got something good out of it. Brad, thank you for being here, man. Thank you for sharing. And, and I think you got some people fired up. You got me fired up. Thanks, Ken. So, okay. hey, go break down some walls. Yeah, that's right, that? man. That's it. And make some more. Thank marble. you for being here, man. Everybody, make sure you go follow Brad. Go to eightminutemastermind.com. I have it scrolling across the bottom. Check him out. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, not Clubhouse because he hates it now. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Follow Brad everywhere. Brad, thank you for being here, man. I appreciate you. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. See you guys.